This morning, you know, I've, uh, last uh, month I was looking through and always trying to come up with messages that would be different from a, an early age in ministry and, and even before I was involved in ministry, I began to note the details of all the things that went into Christmas. And we put a lot of effort into Christmas as we know it. You know, you want to make sure everything's done and properly taken care of and every detail and, and all that. And I look at the things that God did, and he didn't wait till, you know, Black Friday to start, you know, preparing or anything like that. He had everything prepared well in advance. He knew exactly what was going to do, even so much to that the Bible says that Jesus, his, his purpose in coming was established and is slain from the foundations of the world. So long before that, it was in the heart of God of what he was going to do. And so all the time I try and look for different things that might cause you to scratch your head or look into things different or uh, uh, with an open mind and spirit. And so this morning, I I want to uh, present something. A few weeks ago, I said that I took the words of four words, a thrill of hope, and wanted to build this series upon that. And last week, we uh, did the first part of it. We talked about the thrill of hope that must have been for Zacharias, the old priest and his advancing in years wife, Elizabeth, beyond the years of childbirth. But yet, uh, the angel came and announced the word that they were going to have a son and what the thrill of hope must have been for them. And uh, how that, you know, hope is a powerful thing. You, You know what I'm saying? You could be faced with all types of adverse situations, but one little light of ray of hope can come in and it can keep you going and sustain you. And of course, we see that the hope that they had uh, was fulfilled in the birth of John the Baptist, their child, who was a forerunner to Jesus. And uh, he announced uh, the, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so this morning, I want to look at something from a different perspective uh, Christmas finds different people because of their situations and the circumstances that they may be in. It finds them in different, uh, different emotions. We always like to think that everything is good at Christmas, that we're gathered with family and friends, and that's not always the situation for everybody. And, of course, it changes many times from year to year. And so this morning, I want to give you a word of hope, no matter where you're at, no matter what situation you're in, that this word of hope would just find its place in your heart and give you uh, uh, your hope renewed and your strength restored. Amen? Is that good? Okay. With that, I want to pick two verses as we start this morning uh, from the book of Isaiah. The first one this morning is uh, away in a manger. There we go. (laughs) It says, come now. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. And though they're like red crimson, I will make them white as wool. He goes on in Isaiah, the 55th chapter, and he says, Come, anyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money. And without price. And the words that stand out to me is that of, of come. And I want to speak to you this morning about a thrill of hope. And I'll title this 
part two, the invitation. The words come go from the Old Testament, obviously from what Isaiah said, which is 700 years before the, the coming of the Lord. And the announcement was given out. And it was sort of like a save the date type of thing. That something was going to happen and put this on your calendar and mark this and note this. And the invitation still went uh, not only in the Old Testament, but we see it in the, in the life of Jesus. Jesus said to a bunch of fishermen, he said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He said to the multitudes, come, all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. To Zacchaeus, who was in a position up in a tree because he was a short stature, but he wanted to see Jesus. But he looked at him, he says, come, Zacchaeus, today I've got to go to your house. When the disciples were out in the boat and they saw one walking on the water, didn't know who it was, and it was Jesus. And to Peter, he said, come. And Peter stepped out of the boat and began to walk on the water. He said to multitudes that were hungry, he says, I'm the bread of life. Come if you're hungry and I'll give you bread. In the book of Revelation, we hear the words, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. From the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, to the end of eternity as we would know it, the spirit and the bride are crying out, and that word goes out there, come, come. And I believe the spirit of the Lord would say that to each and every one of us today, no matter our situation, our circumstance, no matter where it finds you this morning or this season, the Lord's word is going out, going out to you today saying, come. Not only to you, but to your family members, to those who might be lost, to those who are hurting, to those who are afflicted, to those who are watching via Facebook this morning or at another time. The word of the Lord is saying, come, and I'll explain that to you. We see this great invitation, come. We hear all types of songs at this time of year, uh, for Christmas songs, and I like them all, well, most of them. I can do without Last Christmas by Wham. If I never heard that again, I would be okay, all right? And then Taylor Swift recorded it while well, he sing it to each other. <laughs> Last Christmas Eve. Do you all know the song? Yeah. Give it to someone special. Anyway, but the, the song from years, centuries ago, uh, was taken from basically a position from Israel crying out for a deliverer, for the Messiah that was promised, for the Emmanuel that we sang about this morning. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, chosen seed of Israel, crying out to Emmanuel to come and how they long for him to come. Many of the songs, though, that take place that we sing about that I love, uh, songs that... that uh, uh, are basically to us as an invitation. And, and I think about that, the, the song that was written, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come ye, O come ye, to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And then it tells a little bit about the story there of the birth of Jesus. And I like those carols that talk about that and kind of bring to light some things. 
And one of the verses says, sing choir of angels, sing in exultation, sing all you citizens of heaven above, glory to God, glory in the highest. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, amen. Another carol that was written was that of the first Noel. It talks about that night in this regard. It says, the first Noel the angels did sing was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields as where they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Now, we don't know if it was a winter's night. We don't know if the snow was on the ground so deep. Probably not. Probably not. But nonetheless, it makes for a good song. Born is the king of Israel. And then I think about the song. I like this one. And uh, angels we've heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. And then it's the question, shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly song? Gloria. In excelsis Deo, Gloria, in excelsis Deo. And then the third verse, it says, Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. We're going to kind of go into that direction today with where we're talking about of taking a trip to Bethlehem. There was a, a man by the name of, he was an archbishop, his name was Philip Brooks, was born in 1835, but passed away at the age of 57 or 58, I think it was. He was a large man, and uh, they say around six foot eight, uh, over 300 pounds. And everybody just loved him. He began uh, as a pastor of the Church of the Advent in Philadelphia. And then from there, a few years later, he went to Holy Trinity Church, was very successful Crowds would come to hear him and to listen to him and, and, and be in his ministry, sort of like me. Pushing on 300 pounds. He was the first to preach before the Queen of England, had that privilege and that opportunity. He preached and ministered in 1863 when the Civil War was at its peak. And then actually, uh, he had to, he was motion, emotionally drained quite a bit because every week he would get up there and begin to preach during the Civil War, knowing that uh, there was probably a wife there who'd lost a husband, parents who'd lost a son, siblings who'd lost a brother, children who'd lost a father. And every week there would be someone who had lost that. And it was emotionally draining upon him. He preached throughout that time, even did the funeral service for Abraham Lincoln. And in 19, or I'm sorry, 1865, through this time of just trying to get out from under the weight of the, all of that, he wanted to take a trip to the Holy Land, to Israel, and, and feel as though God could renew his spirit. And so while he was there on Christmas Eve, he had borrowed a horse and made a ride out into the shepherd's field that was there. And as he went out on his way to Bethlehem, there were shepherds even that day out in the field keeping watch over their flocks. And something began to stir in him. He began to 
to feel the power of this Holy Spirit ministering to him, and almost as though joyful song rose within his heart. It was quite a moving experience, and he came back later on, back to the United States, and continued pastoring. And then the next, uh, next Christmas Eve, or a Christmas Eve after that, uh, they always did a Christmas Eve service, and they would ha- involve children. Children would be singing. They'd have a children's choir that was there. And so from his experience, he began to write down his thoughts that had taken place. And uh, he wanted to present it in a song. And so he came to Louis uh, Redder, I think it was his name, and Redner, rather. And he gave it to him as a, in a poem-style form. And he said, I want you to put music to this, and I want the kids to sing it on Christmas Eve. Now, he was kind of like me because this would be t- the night before Christmas Eve that he had given it to him. Not a small task. But Lewis was drawing blanks, threw a lot of papers away, a lot of manuscripts of things that he had done. Nothing seems to w- seemed to work. And he went to bed, went to sleep, and he was awakened with the melody that would take place in the song for that. And able to get together with the children and practice it and rehearse it. Of course, it was a... A great hit. Uh, they sang it, and then before long, it, it began to spread from where their church was to many other churches. And within six years, for the next six years, actually, it was the most popular carol uh, for in Philadelphia. And of course, we still sing it today. You probably know it as "O Little Town of Bethlehem, How Still We See Thee Lie, Above Thy Deep and Dreamless Sleep, The Silent Stars Go By." Yet in your dark streets shines the everlasting light and the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. One night that could change everything. One night the hopes and fears of all the ages would be met in that one night that we call Christmas. How powerful it is bringing a thrill of hope. I want us to look to the scripture from that area, taken from that segment of the gospel, Luke writes from the second chapter, verses 8 and 9, and it says that in that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly filled with fear, or filled with great fear. It's from that place that thrill of hope that I found within the song of holy night that it says long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and a soul felt its worth the soul felt its worth there are a lot of people today who struggle with the feelings of worthlessness they struggle with where they're at in life and wonder why things have gone their way, and depression strikes a lot of people. Hurt, disappointment, get their hopes built up, and something happens, pulls the rug out from under their life. And like I said, sometimes it becomes worse at days like this, or times like this. But it's interesting, What is when I thought about those words, the soul felt its worth. We know that even in the very beginning from the time when, when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and God, God had spoken unto them and told them that they could partake of every tree that was there, every fruit, 
but of one tree. And in the day that they did that, they would die. Of course, we know that through a power, uh, probability of a long period of time having conversations with the serpent, uh, the woman was lured into believing that. And she, along with her husband, then partake of the seed, or the fruit, rather. And then immediately, the Bible says they realized that they were naked and ashamed. The glory of the Lord had lifted upon them. Probably at that time, before that, the glory of the Lord was all around about them. But when the glory lifted, they saw humanity. They saw humanity that was seeking after something that the world would offer. And at that time, they felt shame upon every one of them. And we know that shame is a, is a part of our world today. Some people live in shame for what they've done. Some people live in shame for what others that they love have done. The shame that rests upon them. And many times, people end up doing the things that they do. They walk into sin. They venture out there because they feel like their life is at a place where what's the use? Really, what's the use? What's the point? I never get this. I never get that. And thinking about what is the worth of a soul. We, uh, this past week, I was going through some things, uh, and, and I looked upon a picture that I had, a, a portrait of uh, Albert Pujols. And uh, I looked on the back of this. Uh, it's framed and everything. I look on the back of it, and there were only 350 copies of this, but because I know somebody, I was able to get one of those 350 copies. And, uh, you know, I value it. It's great. And, and I'm really happy to be number 200 and whatever, 37 maybe out of that. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> I thought the value of it. I have another one that has uh, uh, the Albert Pujols, Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright on there. And I thought, man, the value of this, that someone had given this to me. Until I looked on the back and it says 1495. Anyway. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was worth more than that to me. And then I was looking around at different things of worth that I had. And, and uh, how would you put the worth on that? You know, what would you do? And then I happened to see some papers that I collect on, on my credenza and behind my desk. And they were from Sunday school. And there would be a blue marker all over it. And I have a collection of them where Micah would come from Sunday school. Immediately, you'll notice, he catches me on the platform and he presents me with his artwork. <laughs> now, to many people, that may not be worth very much. But to me, <laughs> to me, that means a whole lot. You know, I was thinking about uh, the... Uh, uh, Yesterday, having heard that, uh, I, or was it Friday? I forgot what day it was. Shohei Otani got a contract for $700 million to play baseball for 10 years. $700 million. They had broken it down to how much he gets just by, I mean, while he's sleeping every second. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. And how do we determine that this person's worth more than you know, I had never got an offer like that. But anyway, <laughs> obviously I can't produce like that. But nonetheless, that offer that was given to him and to them, to the Dodgers, they were willing to pay because they believed in what they were getting. 
whether that comes to pass or not. They're still out. They're still obligated. And you look at that and you think of all the other players who work hard, who do the same thing, who perhaps get injured and they can't even live out their contract or their, even the opportunity to make it onto the field because of the injuries or whatever takes place. Does that make them any less worth than what his worth is? And you see, worth is established by what someone would be willing to pay or to sacrifice. We evaluate our worth so many times every day if you have a job. Your, your worth is sold in exchange for uh, time. You give your time and, uh, or, or your money to get time and money. You, you give up your worth. We see the hostage situations. You know, we have hostages that are being there uh, held, and so there's a negotiation or a bargaining that takes place. Now, I would hate to think that if I was a hostage and they'd say, we want, uh, you know, we want $10,000 to release him, and I probably couldn't find even a, don't, a person. You know what I'm saying? You didn't think that was funny? <laughs> Let him die. You know, go ahead. And we oftentimes, it's whatever a person's willing to pay or to sacrifice that determines the worth to two individuals, the one who owns it or the one who is buying it. It's established within there its worth. And I, I think about these guys that we just read about, the songs that the carols sing about, about the shepherds that were out in that field, those shepherds. And uh, what was so special about these seemingly ordinary, common men that merited them to receive an invitation to such an extraordinary event? Now, I don't know if you've ever received a, an invitation to something that you feel totally honored. You know, in fact, every invitation we should be honored because someone thinks that much of us to include them on that. But to think if you were uh, received an invitation to show up at a royal dinner or a private showing, or whatever, those types of things, uh, you would obviously put you in a different category. And I can see these shepherds being out there, and I think about the people who were not invited. The angel didn't show up at the, at the temple. The, the angel didn't show up at the palace and say, Oh, great Herod, I want you to know there is going to be a child born tonight. Uh, he didn't show up to the high priest. None of the priests saw this invitation being delivered, this singing telegram, if you would. None of the family, none of Joseph and Mary's family were even included on it, but rather it was shepherds that received this invitation. And so I was wondering why, why the shepherds and why was it given in person? We saw that so many prophecies about what was going to take place was a prophet or someone moved as the Holy Spirit told them, and then they wrote it down, and it, was, it wasn't a handwritten note. It wasn't something that they found under a rock, but rather the heavens opened up, and an angel begins to announce what was taking place, and the, then a, suddenly a host of angels filled the air. I don't know how many of you read my daily posts, but uh, my declaration this year was it's going to be a season of suddenlies for you. How many of you need some suddenlies? Where you just wait and wait and wait and suddenly something happens. And what made that different? Why would it cause the angels to, as we say, sing this news to them? I want us to go on and look ahead. 
And the angel said to him, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Everybody say all. For all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward all men. How many of you have ever been in a Christmas play as a child? Anybody? You know, you know what I'm talking about. They get the gunny sack costumes for the shepherds or you have to wear a bathrobe. You know, and you came out there and basically you had the shepherds and then you had the wise men. We three kings from Orient, you know. And it seemed like even when you got to be a shepherd, it was kind of like the lower end of the thing. You know, you got the non-speaking role, you know. You just came and showed up. You didn't have any gifts to bring. All you did was just show up at the place that was there. And oftentimes, the shepherds are portrayed as, uh, in fact, there's uh, some merit to this belief, but the, the shepherds are portrayed as some unwanted guys, unloved, unwelcome, unlearned, uneducated, unworthy, untrusted, even so much that Jeremiah even says, he says, don't accept the word of a shepherd in the court of law. <laughs> you know, they couldn't even trust their word. It was also told by one of the prophets, don't buy anything from a shepherd. You know, and, and so what a reputation that they had in the Old Testament. And of course, that was carried into the New Testament as well. It was not like, oh, we go from Malachi to Matthew and now we seal, <laughs> you know, but there was a little bit different. There was something different about these guys. And something different about the role of the shepherd. I mean, if you go all the way back, I want you to think about this. In Genesis, the very beginning, uh, Adam and Eve have two sons, Abel and Cain. And Abel was a shepherd. He raised sheep. And he was the, cho he was the chosen one through whom the seed would come forth. And so anyway, he was killed, just like Satan always wants to destroy the seed. But Abel was a shepherd. Abraham had herds. He was a shepherd. Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs had, uh, were shepherds. We even see the story of the king of all, the greatest king that we know of, King David, of whom his throne would not end, was a shepherd boy. Many people saw a shepherd boy, but God saw a king within him. Amen? Amos, the prophet, considered to be a minor prophet. But he said, I'm not a prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I'm just a farmer and raising and herding of sheep. That's all he was. And then we see Jesus who comes along, and he claims, lays claim to the, to the fact that he's a shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his flock. My sheep know my voice, and to another they will not listen. And so we see how, how valued the role of a shepherd was in God's eyes. And not only was it valued, but it was greatly necessary. They were definitely an essential part of that time. Remember, they instituted worship back at the tabernacle. Of course, it began when Abraham was willing to offer up a sacrifice of his only son. And God said, don't touch him because I've got to 
a ram here that will be offered as a sacrifice. And we see that that was a part of the, uh, the worship that they had at the tabernacle and then went on into the temple. And of course, the shepherds were very necessary because without shepherds, there would be nothing to sacrifice. There would be nothing there. The shepherds had a great role. And these probably had a, a greater role even than that. So today I want to present to you something for thought uh, that is a great possibility with the information that I want to give you this morning, okay? Are you okay? I'm going to challenge your thinking this morning. And so these shepherds, not only were they, uh, had a sense of worth about them, but I believe that God pronounced the worth upon them by the role of which they would play. So to go there, I have to give you a couple of verses from the Old Testament. How many of you know that there were more than 300 prophecies that were given about Jesus and them being as the Messiah and all of them being fulfilled? And there's one, you know, Isaiah says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. Or, I'm sorry, the, the, for unto you is born a, a, a Savior. Uh, his name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And he gave, Isaiah gave so many prophecies referring to the Messiah. Uh, the virgin shall bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. But Micah, a small, uh, a small prophetic word, not very many chapters long, but yet he pinpoints where it's going to take place. And we know that. And so anyway, in Micah, the fifth chapter, he gives us prophetic word, and he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, which is what it was called before it became known as Bethlehem, Though you're little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth one, come forth to me, the one who will be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from the old, from everlasting. Of course, Micah had the, the scope on where it was going to happen, that it would take place in Bethlehem. And even Bethlehem itself, it says there, says, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, there's not much to you, insignificant, overlooked, but yet you will be the place where the Son of uh, God, the, the Messiah, will come. And oftentimes it's overlooked because the chapter before that, there's an interesting verse that we want to look at this morning. And are, are you with me? Are you following this? Okay. So Micah says, in reference to the Messiah, he says, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. And the word tower of the flock is the word, it, it, it's the Hebrew words, migdal eder, migdal eder. And it's an interesting thing, when he's talking about this tower of the flock, uh, that we want to look at this. And it was a typical thing, there would be many watchtowers that were built in the land. Many of them were for military purposes, for strategic purposes, to see out over the area, to have a lookout, to see of an enemy that might be coming. But it was also used, the, the towers were used by shepherds, to get in a high position to look out over the shepherd's field. Not look at them from down there where things could come in, wolves could come in and they would never notice it, 
but to be at a higher place of an elevation to look out over the fields. So Micah is not only saying, is it going to happen in Bethlehem, but there is a specific tower. <laughs> it's like he gives the address. I want you to think about this. Not only have we got to save the date, we've got the location, and we even have probably the place where it perhaps could have taken place at. Are you with me? Does that make sense? But some interesting things lie here in both of these references that he gives to Bethlehem and the Tower of the Flock is that they both happen to do with childbirth. Are you with me? Born in Bethlehem, the daughter of Zion is going to bring forth the Messiah, the Tower of the Flock or Migdal Adar. And this place, that's why I like going to Israel, because you learn so many things that, that it just doesn't pull off the pages. But I've had the privilege of going to, to Israel a couple of times and there looking out on the places. I remember the first time on our first ride that we got out the next morning after we arrived and we drove out to the place uh, and there was, uh, we began to read from Samuel and it talked about the area of the field between this mount, this mount, and it was the area that David probably slew Goliath. And so anyway, I'm, I'm moved by this. And it was raining. And so the tour guide said, he said, I know you probably don't want to get out because it's raining. I said, I want out. <laughs> I'm going to put my feet on the place where Goliath had fallen, where David chopped off the head of the enemy. I said, I, I came this far. I'm not going to stop now. I'm not going to let rain get in my way. I wanted to be in that place. And so, anyway, uh, there's also a place outside of Jerusalem. If you look south toward Bethlehem, which is about five or six miles down, and there's what is known as the shepherd's field that is there. Needless to say, the tower of the flock is positioned near that area between Jerusalem, where the temple would be, and where the birthplace of Jesus would be, and there would be the tower of, of uh, the flock. And I, I've taken a picture here, or I haven't taken that picture. I, I took it off the internet. Anyway. <laughs> now, I'm not going to tell you like many of the people do in the tourism place, because you'll go to a couple of places where they think Jesus was born. You'll go to a couple of places where they think Jesus was crucified a couple of places. You know, there's some different denominations and beliefs have different stages. Uh, but you can ascertain from what the scripture says an idea and perhaps locate that. But this is a typical tower of the flock that you would find there. And that's Migdalidar is the, the word, the Hebrew word before that. And that's what it means. And so this scripture comes to mind at an earlier place. It's, it's like it didn't just show up in Micah without the people understanding about that particular tower. Now, I'm not saying this is the particular tower. It could be, but there's multiples out there uh, in this area where it could have taken place. But in Genesis, the 35th chapter, if you read about Jacob, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob 
is a crucial and a key point in, in uh, the, the furtherance of the generations of the Jews through whom the Messiah would come. And in the 35th chapter, there, there's something interesting that takes place. And I'm not trying to put more into it than what it gives, but I am trying to present a case here today to give you some thought on this. Uh, I mean, after all, we don't know if it was a cold winter's night that was so deep, but we sing it anyway, right? <laughs> so there are some things we don't know for certain, but it does give us eyes of understanding to see how things could have been. But in the 35th chapter of Genesis, Rachel, uh, Jacob has married Rachel, and he loved Rachel. And so anyway, she is giving birth at this time. She's reached the place where she is at the point of delivering a child. And after she delivers the child, she dies in the 35th chapter. We go on a little bit farther, and Jacob goes from Bethel. Remember when he had this experience from Bethel that uh, he laid his head upon a stone and the... the Angels came down, descending and ascending on a ladder, Jacob's ladder, we call it. And so he called that place Bethel, which means Beth is house. El means El Yahweh, El Shaddai. And so he said, this is none other than the house of God or the gateway to heaven. And he had an experience there. And so he goes from Bethel, which is the house of God, and at a little bit later in the 35th chapter, he has this experience. He's had this experience where he wrestled with the angel. Do you remember that one? This was prior to that. He wrestled with the angel, and he prevailed. And so anyway, God changes Jacob's name in the 35th chapter to God prevails, Israel. God prevails. You want, you, you want to know why Israel is so successful? Because God prevails. It's upon them. It's written upon them. And so it's an interesting thing because Rachel, her name means you, E-W-E, or female sheep. Are you putting together the pieces here? So you have God prevails, who's married to a female sheep, and she's going to give forth a son, and as she's delivering this child, the the woman there says, come on, you're just about there. It's a, it's a man child that's being born. And she says, Benoni. And that's what oftentimes they name the children according to the circumstances or the surroundings and different things like that. And she said, Benoni. I can imagine in her dying breath calling that child because she dies. It's been so difficult upon her. And Benoni means son of my sorrow. And immediately, Jacob says, Benjamin, changes the name from son of sorrow to son of the right hand. And that's powerful. So what do we have here is we have an experience from the house of God, Bethel, to through uh, Israel, God prevails, through a female sheep who gives birth to, to Benoni, which is a son of sorrow, who is changed to the son of the right hand. And it's almost as though it's a, it's a play, or it's, it's, it's like a, 
a preview of what's going to take place. We can see the gospel in Luke being played out here in Genesis, the 35th chapter. That's how detailed God is. And sometimes you just have to be and know and, and, and connect the things to really understand this. And so, anyway, we have this group of shepherds, as I had mentioned to you, who by many people were thought to be lowly. Because, I mean, they weren't clean. They lived out with the sheep. It was a 24-7 job. They were constantly there. They did a lot of, had a lot of dirty work involved in them. Uh, and they were considered to be sort of nomads to take sheep to different pastures. And so they were looked down upon by a lot of people. And it's so interesting that I see that, that the shepherds who were thought to be lowly, but actually were elevated, but not in the eyes of man. I want you to think about this. Where they were located, it's very possible that these shepherds weren't just a bunch of guys who couldn't find another job and they, you know, going to do this for a while until something else better comes along. But they grew and they knew what it was to be a shepherd. And they were trained and they were skilled in what they were supposed to be and supposed to do, what they were supposed to produce. And it's very possible that this group of shepherds were trained shepherds. They were temple shepherds. They were a priestly type of shepherds or Levitical type of shepherds in so much that they had a very, uh, a very valuable task that was placed upon them. They just weren't any old bunch of guys among any old bunch of sheep, but they had a specific role. And here they are positioned in the field of, of, of uh, the shepherd's field that David had set up. Now, I want you to think about this. So David is from Bethlehem, but the temple, the tabernacle was set up in Jerusalem. So David had established the shepherd's field by which you see today in this area. And uh, I forgot something that was of value. Anyway, so David established this as the area for the shepherd's field to be watching over them. And the reason they had that specific area is the sheep that were raised there were specifically to be used for sacrifice. Not only the daily sacrifices, but the yearly sacrifice for the Holy of Holies, for the season of Passover. Are you listening to what I'm saying? So these shepherds, though people thought that they were lowly, they actually knew what they were doing. And they had been assigned to do their job. And here they are keeping watch out there. They say that uh, the, the road that went from Bethlehem on up to Jerusalem along this line of where the tower of the flock would be was actually called the King's Highway. It was an elevated place. The king didn't go down into the valleys. He stayed high so that they could see any types of attack. Isn't that powerful? I don't know about you. But here we see that the tower of, of, the, tower of the flock positioned on the king's highway in between Bethlehem. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I get excited over this stuff. Are you with You don't get excited over this? This beats any hallmark. Come on now, folks. They just happened to be in the fields. 
keeping watch, raising lambs for Passover, and for special, uh, giving them special precaution to take measures of what needed to happen be, to present a perfect sacrifice. Now, I've, I've taken the, the, uh, the wording of one of the um, Jewish tour guides who happened to be a shepherd as well, who comes from generation upon hundreds of years as a shepherd. And this is what he says. I want to give this so I don't want to mess anything up. It says when it, he says when a goat, uh, in fact, he comes from a line of Jews, shepherd, uh, Jewish shepherds. When a sheep gives birth, she stands on all four legs. And when the lamb comes out, it's common for it to be still be wrapped in the amniotic sac. And once the lamb is out of the mother, the mother will take two steps back and two steps forward. And two steps back and two steps forward. And repeats this back and forth. And it's believed that the mother does this in order to break the amniotic sac and release the lamb. However, it is very possible in this process that the lamb would fall down and accidentally the mother would step upon the, the lamb and either bruise it or even break a bone. So for thousands of years, shepherds in Israel have taught a process that will ensure the safety of the newborn. And the practice, uh, uh, the practice was required if the lamb was to be used for temple worship or temple sacrifice, it had to be perfect and without blemish, according to Leviticus, the 22nd chapter. And when the, the lamb is born, the back legs come out first. And so the shepherd would take a swaddling cloth and lay it upon its right arm and grab the back legs, lay it over his arm, and hook it and begin to pull uh, the back legs. Then as the rest of the lamb would come out, the shepherd would bring his left arm under and catch it and embrace it like this so that it would not even touch the ground. Now the interesting thing about she uh, the, the swaddling cloth is that the swaddling cloth was actually uh, garments that the priests had worn in receiving the sacrifices. I want you to think about this. So they took the used robes that were probably stained with blood of the Old Testament sacrifice, and they would rip them down, and some of them were used in the lighting of, as a wick for the menorah. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I get excited about this. <laughs> the light of the world come on now, had already been stained with blood and it gives out the light. And then they would take the swaddling claws, the, the remainder of that, and it would be used for the purpose of bringing forth lambs that would be temple worship sacrificial lambs. And they did not want it to touch the ground. And so the shepherd then would wrap up the, uh, the, the, the lamb with swaddling cloth and hold it tightly to his chest, wiping the lamb's mouth and nose and calming it until it breathed normally. And once the lamb was calm, then it would be laid in this manger and protected and separated, uh, still wrapped in the swaddling cloth and remaining there until the mother would come over and introduce herself to this lamb. Now, I, happen, I, I think about this, and I'm like, these shepherds, wow, I went beyond my time. What happened? Where did time go this morning? Are you getting the picture, though? So in the middle of it all, these shepherds 
had been trained in this regard. These weren't ordinary guys who didn't care, who let the lamb be born and touch the ground, but they had taken special care of this. And we see that they knew what was going on. They had taken a special precaution. That was what their role was. And this angel shows up and says, don't be afraid because I'm bringing you good news, which is going to be to all people, because unto you. I don't know about you, but that will cause your self-worth to rise up. When something that God says, I'm saying this for your benefit. Man. Unto you, there is a babe that's wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. (laughs) And those people who were considered to be worthless until he appeared, the soul felt its worth. They were the nameless, faceless people. We don't know these unknown guys. They're just a bunch of guys we think of in bathrobes, right? Holding a cane at the Christmas music, at the pageantry. But yet God knew who they were. And their steps were ordered of God. God knew where they would be on that particular night. And he sent an announcement while they were there watching out over the shepherd's field to those flocks, making sure and hoping that one day one of theirs would be used as a sacrificial lamb. And this angel shows up and he says, guys, I want to tell you something. Your job just got easier. You don't have to raise a perfect lamb anymore. Because there's one already wrapped in swaddling cloth. And it's lying in a manger. And no wonder that invitation that said to come here and look at him. They hurried with haste to go there and see what was going on. And they were astonished and they were amazed at what was taking place. And they began to tell other people. Of course, people didn't take the word of a shepherd. (laughs) Right? But you talk about a thrill of hope that was given to them. But the shepherd didn't just say that to them. Because he knew that there were other people in that area. Though they weren't watching the flocks, the lamb was for them too. And he looked down the the centuries of time and the millennials of time to people today. And he said, unto you is born this day. Unto you is born this day. And I think about this, that, that he sends forth great news of great joy to all people. And that means whatever situation you're in today, it was for you. To the person who might feel insignificant, To those who feel nobody cares. To those who feel have been used and abused. Victimized. They've been told, perhaps even from their home, from the time that they were raised up. A teacher, a a bully, a coach. You'll never amount to anything. He came to them. Those who were left out and left alone. Those who were left to die. Those who had believed a lie from the enemy that told them that they were worthless, that they would never make anything. They sucked into the lie and bought into it, and now they feel the shame and the guilt and the worthlessness of all that. To you, to them, to every one of them, was born a king, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Those who feel like they had wasted their lives, following addiction after addiction, giving to no end. Those whose lives had ended up in ruins, filled with mistakes and considered to be a misfit, unto you is born this day a Savior, 
which is Christ the Lord. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think about this and it just moves me this morning. Have you got 10 more minutes? You got all day? <laughs> I thought about when I was a, a teenager, we had a, a gentleman that would come to our church and sing. He was like six foot nine, big tall guy. And he always sang this song. And it always caught my attention. I didn't realize the story behind the song that he sang. But it has always been with me. And I want to give you a little back, backdrop on it before I read the lyrics to the song. It said, for the first 15 years after the song was written and appeared in print, it made its way from one person to another anonymously. The song was written and nobody knew who wrote it. It was preached from pulpits, printed in tracts, and published in collections of poetry. The poem was um, eminently popular but almost, to no one, almost no one knew who had written it. Myra Brooks Welch, who lived in Laverne, California, never set out to be a poet and made no effort to claim the ownership of the poem when it began to circulate beyond its original publication. Her poetry was just a gift she developed when she became physically limited because of a severe case of rheumatoid arthritis that left her paralyzed and in a wheelchair. And of course, knowing the situation behind that, that's why many people have been touched by this. And years later, she said, I didn't choose this as a career, it just chose me. She had grown up in what she called a singing family. Her childhood home was filled with instruments, and frequently she was the organist for the evenings of singing, and later learned to play the guitar and the piano. But through this time of disability, she began to write. Through poetry, her new music came forth. She celebrates God's, celebrated God's goodness and the beauty of creation and the emotions of, heaven, uh, of human life. Each word was typed using the eraser end of a pencil in order to make it happen. And Welch's most famous poem was inspired in early 1921 by the remarks of a speaker addressing a group of young people. The poem seemed to just... Uh, fill that place. And it f then it first appeared in February 26th of 1921 in the issue of the Gospel Messenger, and she got a royalty check of 75 cents. The poem's wide circulation might be traced to a woman then who happened to hear this, uh, and in 1933, she sent the poem to Mother's Home Life magazine as her favorite poem, and there, uh, it appeared there and in many other publications after that, writer unknown. In 1936, though, the anonymous poem was read at the conclusion of a speech delivered by the main speaker at a YMCA conference in Hawaii. Coincidentally, presiding at the event was Dwight O. Welch, YMCA secretary for the island of Kauai. And according to a report in 1954, it said that he explained to everyone, the surprised audience, that the author of the poem was not unknown to him because he was her son. God kills me. He just blows me away. So Myra Brooks's Welch 
name was finally attached to the poem in 1936 when the New York Times book review uh, followed up on a search for the author being included this song called The Old Violin or The Master's Hand. And she wrote like this, and I'll try to do my best to read this. It's a very small print. But she felt this inspiration. T'was battered and scarred. And the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth its while to waste much time on this old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar? A dollar, then... Two, only two. Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three, but no. And from the back of the room, far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. And there, wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars? Who'll make it two? Two thousand? Who'll make it three? And going and gone, he said. And the people cheered. But some cried. We do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply. The touch of the master's hand. It's also believed that this was a, a story that she had known, and the, 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 the master, the, the one who played it, was actually the one who, who, create, who made it. And many a man with life out of tune, battered and scarred with sin, it's auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. A soul felt its worth. This world may not think you're too much. may have people that think that there's nothing about you, but know this no matter what. You're worth something. God did it all for you. He became a man. And he wants his touch to be upon your life. I want you to stand to your feet if you would, please. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. When the Lord put this in my spirit, I didn't know if there would be anyone in this audience today that this would personally... Uh, mean something to or if it was just something to give you information but today you may feel worthless maybe things have happened and you don't understand and it's brought you down it's tearing you apart and it's as though you're covered with dirt I want to tell you something the master is here today and he wants to wipe off all that dirt he wants to tighten those loose strings he wants to play your song through you. If you're here this morning, would you just lift up your hand and say, I, I kind of feel like that today. Is there anybody? Anyone? Yes. 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 Father, I thank you for those. Today, I don't know what 
has brought them to that place. But I know what brought that word to them today. It's through the guidance of your word. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that what you want to do in their heart today, you had it all planned and prepared. You had their steps ordered to be here to hear this word today. And I break off of them every word curse, every generational curse, every self-afflicted curse, every mental curse that would be upon them. I cast it out in the name of Jesus. And I speak wholeness and life, transformation, and complete newness over them right now. If you're here this morning and you say, I know somebody who fits that description today, I want you to lift up your hand for them today, many of you. Father, we declare, declare the same thing for those who might be in that path, who might be in that place of feeling known as, I pray for a suddenly upon them right now. A suddenly that you appear to them and cause everything that has been darkened and has beat them down. The word of hope that comes to them and says, unto you this day, unto you, child, unto you, addict, unto you, abused, unto you has been born this day, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And break off of them every chain and every fetter that the world has placed upon them. Every chain, every fetter, every mental stronghold, go in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for your complete transformation in Jesus' mighty name. I speak that over this church. I speak that over this church. I thank you, God, that years may have come and the enemy has done a lot of things, but will not wallow in that shame. We thank you, God, the touch of the master's hand is upon this congregation, upon this ministry, upon those who serve here and attend here and give here and love to be here. I pray it over them right now in the name of Jesus. What has been anonymous becomes known. What was discarded becomes brought to light today and rewarded. Thank you, Lord. Lord, let this be a December, a Christmas season that every family here will experience a miracle in whatever they need. Miraculous things. Father, thank you for reinstilling that thrill of hope in our lives today. The thrill of hope. The invitation's there. And I pray that they accept it in Jesus' name. And everyone say, amen. Thank you. Thank you for coming this morning. Look forward to seeing you. Have a blessed week.